Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Thanks for coming back for bonus COVID-6. Six. Six. This is the sixth time we have looked at the literature that comes out weekly and tried to summarize it. So if you're lazy and you don't want to go looking for it, this is where you get the stuff that we think is important. So that's kind of the, the catch. Yes. It also marks the 197th day of COVID. Well... Since the first case of COVID that since, was described, it's probably older. Well, since they finally acknowledged and admitted it, but since December 8th, it has been 197 days. Perfect. <laughs> anyway. So, you want to go... Go back to Monday? Go into the June 15th stuff. Perfect. So this is a preprint um, coming from ARP et al. Really looking at face coverings, so wearing masks out in public grocery stores. They looked in 20 different counties in Wisconsin, so... You know, very similar folk to us in Minnesota. You know, we might argue a little bit differently about different things. But anyway, they looked at the the grocery stores and they found that of all the people observed, 41% were using a face covering. So really not even half of the people were wearing a mask, which kind of fits, I think, what I see locally anyway. But the people who are more likely to wear a mask, adults, check one for me, female, check one for me. But they also, the more expensive grocery store, you're more likely to also wear a face covering. So mm. there is not a Byerly's in Little Falls. I'm driving to the cities to go shopping. Huh, that's interesting. Well, if you think at some of the stores in our area, we can't name them, but some historically are less expensive, you never see people wearing masks. Correct. So I guess that says something. I haven't gone. I quit going there. I haven't gone there since this all started. Yeah. When I went in there the first time, I'm like, nope, not going back. Adios. So, secondly, the next one, Volp, Volp, Volfam hmm, et al. Uh, this was actually a preprint, at, uh, again, on the effect of social distancing on COVID-19. And this was done using basically smartphone GPS data. So basically so Big you're Brother. being tracked. Yes. <laughs> you're being watched. Hey, Hal. Oh, that's a movie you never saw. Um, so, interestingly, once they put the stay-at-home orders in, uh, there was a 35% increase in social distancing, their, the way they scored it. And that was amazingly, by coincidence, associated with a 35% reduction in COVID-19 mortality. So mm. it sure works if people are staying away from each other. They just don't get sick as often. What if they just left their cell phones at home? Yeah, I don't know. Because then that data wouldn't necessarily be perfect, but... be hard to track you. <laughs> All right. So then we're going to move on. This is from Miyame. Miyama? Miyami. I like that name. At Al. At Al. Journal of the International Journal of Infectious Diseases. So we are back to the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Ugh. 23 passengers who had asymptomatic or mild SARS-CoV-2 the the median duration that they were still spreading this virus if they either had no symptoms or very mild symptoms was still 19 days from their initial swab that was positive. Eight of those same 23 people still had another positive even after testing negative once. So people who tested negative initially then came back positive later on 
even though they were all asymptomatic. Yeah. Now let's get back to who. Who? The World Health Organization again. That whole. You no, know, stop. And uh, and they said that uh, you know initially came out with that whole thing, that whole debacle about asymptomatic uh, cases and spread. And and here we go again. Another. There's just all kinds of articles about asymptomatic people spreading. So this is from the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, they wouldn't print it unless it was great. So next, Sakurai, Sakuru, Sakurai, Sakurai, uh, et al. And then, and this was also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and this was kind of interesting because it was also the Diamond Princess cruise ship. I'm wondering, am I ever going to go on a cruise now? I've I've never been a big guy to get on a boat, but <sighs> so. so yeah, well, I, I'm not much for buffet. So uh, in this cruise ship, they were uh, all these people are asymptomatic, but tested positive. A lot of these people remained asymptomatic throughout the course of their infection, and, and it was interesting that the median number of days between the first positive and the first two serial negatives was nine days. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just interesting when you looked at uh, the percentage of people with resolution. That it was kind of between eight and fifteen days. These people that are asymptomatic. So also they, they did note that the likelihood of delayed resolution increased the older you get. So right. like you'd get it, you'd be done in a day. I'd get it, it'd be like six months later and I'm finally <laughs> you, over You it. said it, you said it. But again, this is all about these asymptomatic people. Just again, just you got to roll with it. All right, we're moving to the journal called Transfusion. Hartman at Elm. So they retested 86 patients within 28 days after they self-reported symptom resolution. So 28 days, about a month after they said they had, you know, gotten over their COVID. And um, persistent viral shedding in 13% of them still, even with an average of 19 days where they had this persistent um, shedding. So they were still spreading this even 19 days after they said that they were like over it. Um, but kind of like what Kurt mentioned a minute ago, that the people who had the more persistent shedding were older, average about 54, so younger than Kurt, um, and they were more likely to have higher viral concentrations, which goes back to the same other thing. But I think we're going to see ageism as a result of this, where people will avoid anybody who looks old. Well, you don't like, look you don't look 54. That was a compliment. I'm not sure which way Shoot. that was, went. Okay. <laughs> All right, so next, uh, Wang et al., et al., whichever, potato, potato, uh, in the Journal of Neurology. And I think this is the reason I wanted to just bring this one up is this whole Guillain-Barre thing. And, uh, you know, there's been some talk that, that we'd see this, and there was actually a meta, meta-analysis, 41 articles. And uh, the most common neurologic symptoms, of course, are that smell and taste thing. And I think we all know that's like 41% of people, roughly. Uh, in our country, <laughs> roughly 41.44. Roughly, you yeah, know, yeah. I just read this article five minutes ago. Yeah, it's stuck in my brain. And um, the Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome uh, and the inflammation of the brain, spinal cord, and meninges was reported in multiple case series, uh, but it's fairly rare. Fairly rare. Stay tuned. But it's out there. We will have another comment on Guillain-Barre coming up. So then we move to Tuesdays. <laughs> Tuesdays. Anyway, we're going to go shut off the air conditioner and hopefully not tip over this table. So you get me for a minute. So Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases, Lou et al. So basically they looked at um, three different family units and the, the COVID in 10 people from three family units. So obviously our N is very little, but the different roles um, of transmission, this 
this was just neat because they were at this restaurant. Basically, the only way that these people could have gotten sick was from an asymptomatic person who had droplet transmission through the air conditioning units to then infect these other family units. So basically, the whole point is you got to watch the ventilation. You got to, you know, there are asymptomatic people who might be at the same restaurant. And even if you're fairly far away, it might get circulated. Doesn't seem to matter what you're eating, though. Just don't use the chopsticks, remember? They they definitely... Well, you don't want to reuse somebody reuse else's... Don't reuse somebody else's chopsticks. Yeah, like you don't want to have a communal kind of, oh, I just grabbed into there with my chopsticks. And then you do. So, so yeah, and actually some of that stuff with that whole ventilation thing, again, some of these big plants have huge fans. And that uh, the plant that I had a bunch of positives out of, tons of fans. So I mean, it would make sense. I mean, if you look at something like Legionella, that's... Well, that's different, though. Well, I know, but it, it's through the air conditioning units. and So next in the emergency, <laughs> emerging infectious diseases, DeSalazar, Adele. We've always got to say all these names. It's so torturous. Where are you? Uh, I think I'm on the second page. Geographic spread. Mm. Can you can you see where I am? I don't think we did, did that one, but go for it. Well, I, I kind of X'd it. So, so really, it's kind of neat. Uh, yeah, well, it's this whole thing with travel history from China. And again, that obviously the air travel played a major role uh, coming to other countries. And actually, they used the the data from February, and they found that daily air travel volume was uh, positively correlated with imported cases of SARS. Well, I don't think that's a big surprise. Um, they estimated that that increasing flight volume by 31 passengers a day was associated with one additional. Expected case. So we really don't so want to be in the middle seat every, on the airplane. Yeah, for every 30 people that you toss in a plane, you're going to get another sick person. That's what they're saying. So now really cool stuff. And I will be very excited to talk to Chris Hagen this week if he's going to talk about drugs and stuff, either Tuesday or maybe next week, about his new drug of choice for if he gets COVID. Dexamethasone. It's kind of been out there now, of course, but there's actually a study here out of Nature written by Ledford, basically showing that the steroid dexamethasone can actually reduce deaths in ventilated patients as well as in patients receiving only oxygen. So basically, this is just kind of coming out. It was actually just this kind of statement put out there um, getting published actually later in that week. We'll come back to this. But the steroid dexamethasone might actually show some promise. Yeah. And then on to Guillain-Barre. Yeah, happened again, preprint. And uh, they actually identified 24 published cases of uh, Guillain-Barre, kind of a post-infectious neurologic syndrome, same in this situation. And sadly, because I'm a guy, uh, the majority of these cases were male. And uh, I'm not out of the woods on this one because the patients ranged in age from 23 to 84. So, so it does, yeah, I mean, if you think about the other patients we've seen with Guillain-Barre over the years, but yeah, it's a quite a spread. So... Uh, and but the prognosis and, was good. Yeah, there's only one documented death, so I think that's uh, comforting. All right. So to kind of continue along this whole brain inflammation thing, so Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, Naughton et al., uh, did this study looking at um, how the increased inflammation associated with COVID can actually uh, accelerate the progression of Alzheimer's disease um, in the neurodegeneration part of Alzheimer's disease. So basically... If someone has Alzheimer's and then they get COVID, expect that progression. And I think 
not to sound morbid, but, you know, we've had a lot of these end of life talks and that might be something to consider if you have a loved one who's, you know, has some memory issues, some early Alzheimer's even really have that end of life discussion with them. Like, are you really sure you want to be on a vent? Cause you come off, you're might be way advanced in your Alzheimer's. So just gonna, something to think about. I'm going to date myself here, but Naughton, you probably don't even know this. There was a stress test called the Naughton. No. There was the Bruce protocol and the Naughton. And that was before you were born. I think my husband went to a guy college with a guy last name, Naughton, JP. Yeah. That makes absolutely nothing to do with anything. No. Um, so we're moving on <laughs> to the last one. Davies at Allen. This was actually in nature medicine. Uh, interesting, they used this mathematical modeling. So all these guys with uh, mechanical pencils sitting around writing stuff out. And uh, they tried to estimate the age-specific susceptibilities, right? Um, and so they kind of fit this model to these six countries. And interestingly, when they looked at this, that people under the age of 20 are half as susceptible to infection as those over 20. And yes. 79% of uh, infections among adolescents are asymptomatic. So, I that's, mean, really, 80% of these high schoolers walking around that are infecting people like me who might have early Alzheimer's and then might get worse. Isn't that crazy, though? Yeah. So 31% of infections among people age 70 and older are asymptomatic. That's, Again, that's a high number, I think. 31% of people that are old are still asymptomatic. Yeah. And again, we had some issues after the old World mm -hmm. Health Organization can you know, said that there's no such thing, but everybody has something about asymptomatic spread. It's just fascinating to me. And it's just, this is what makes it scary is that even in the 70 plus year olds who probably have at least one comorbidity, still 30 some percent are asymptomatic. So what makes you be asymptomatic versus here's your ECMO and the vent? I mean, yeah, crazy. Blood type. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. All right. So moving on. This came, this next article, excuse me, came from the Journal of Medical Virology. Ha et al. Analysis of children, of all children from families. So these are 314 kids that had known infected family members in this province in China. So kids who were in close contact actually spread the virus less than adults who were in close contact, which... You know, they don't have as many of these two receptors, so they're just not getting it sick, so they can't spread it as well. Who knows? But um, the incubation period in kids was a little bit longer than usual. Yeah. You know, we keep quoting this four to five days, five and a half days, but the kids, for adults, yeah. for adults kids, it was at about nine days average incubation period. Some yeah. did, did get pneumonia, but what they found is that of all these kids, these 314 kids, 91% of them still had RNA in their stool samples, but... Nobody who but. was wiping the butts of these kids. No, nobody got sick from them. Yeah. It's kind of what they, they deduced, which is, is just very interesting. So is that just showing that all this viral crap they're detecting in? It's kind of like the dog. Ooh. Because remember, we had a thing last time where dogs get it, but they don't seem to shed it. Right. And cats get it, and they shed it. So that's why we don't like cats. Right. But, um, so the kids but are you wonder, wonder. Is this, what does this say for daycares? That it's not a big thing, not except big for the thing. adults that, well, even the adults that work there potentially can't get sick. Well, right. So, I, I mean, they're going to have to study more of these stool samples because if it's just the viral particles, again, we keep saying over and over, just because you can detect virus doesn't mean it's actually virulent in the live virus. So, at least this is a reassuring thing, I would think. After finding RNA. So, I think we're moving on we to are. Carpenter et al. That's the one from academic 
emergency medicine. So they had a little thing, and I think the the one thing that I wanted to just point out from their study that was interesting is that they found the sensitivity of testing, the PCR testing in ERs, 60 to 78%. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, we're seeing some of our patients go to the ER. They're like, no, you don't have COVID. and you're, But they have lymphopenia, and they got elevated D-dimer, and they got all this other stuff. So remember, there's other tests, and uh, these PCRs aren't great. The Obviously, the antibodies are better. Um, but, uh, just keep that in mind. You know, they always, they talked a little bit about how CT scanning could be used, but again, that's not a standard. You're not going to CT everybody. But they did also mention, like you said, the lymphopenia, but also that when you're the loss of smell and taste is kind of the, the one thing that's like, okay, if they have that, they're better at diagnosing COVID. If they don't have that, well, good luck. (laughs) All right. So last one from that day from the journal otolaryngology had a neck surgery, um, qui et al. This is where they're also looking at the smell and taste. And they looked at five tertiary hospitals in Europe and China. And interestingly, and this is this I think goes back to the whole how this this virus may have mutated from you know the Chinese version of the virus to the European version of the virus to whatever hit Washington State version of the virus. But the the strain that came out of Europe, it looks like there have been 41% of them have this loss of taste or smell, like you had already mentioned. took you a while to get there. I did. I it was took like, me geez, a long time. I was trying to... Is she going to get to the point? No, it took me a while. But the, the Chinese strain appeared to only have um, 10% of their patients who tested positive had the loss of taste and smell. So why? So just the difference in the viral They said there was mutation. a mutation, yeah. It's different in Europe than it was in China. China. So... Moving on to like June 18th. Thursday. Patel. There's like a million by Patel. Uh, probably not the same Patel. Um, clinical infectious diseases, June 16th. And uh, they did an interesting thing. And I think the thing that I kind of picked out of here right away was this was a nursing home uh, facility in Illinois. And they followed 126 residents that were testing positive. Uh, and they followed them for 30 days. And the 33 cases... Uh, that were confirmed at the beginning, 58% were symptomatic. And again, this is a nursing home. 39% remained asymptomatic. What? There's no asymptomatic cases, Dr. Bell? No, there are. The funny thing I think about this especially is that nursing homes, you know, we've been on call how many times you get calls from the nursing home, and every little thing you get a call on. So it's not like they were neglecting these patients. They tend to over-worry about these patients. So for 39% of them to remain asymptomatic, I mean, that's... Yeah. But then the death percentages. Almost a third. Ugh. So, yeah. Anyway. Bad deal. Bad deal. All right. This is a preprint from Corral et al. We're looking at hospitalized patients with pneumonia. Again, this is where methylprednisolone comes in. This study, again, preprint, number of 85 patients they looked at, methylprednisolone was associated with reduced risk of death, ICU admission, and non-invasive ventilation. So. Winner. Winner. Still going to wait a little bit. These are preprints, and this is early, but we might have a new drug coming down the pipeline. Hold the H drug. Give them dexamethasone. We'll get there. So, yeah, interesting. So, and then we went to Patel again. (laughs) And this was clinical infectious diseases. Uh, It doesn't, I don't know his first name, so I don't know if the same guy. Um, It could be a girl. Or girl, yes, Patel. I had a friend, Narenda Patel. I know. 
Yeah. We parked the residency right. with him. So anyway, so, and he was a guy. Uh, investigators. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, clear that up. Uh, they analyzed data on 146 NP swabs and then OP swabs. And, you know, just the kind of the one thing I want to pull out of this is that there's some suggestion that the nasal pharyngeal swabs might have a higher sensitivity to detect lower viral concentrations. So if you have the people that are not the high-level viral stuff, you might pick them up better with the nasal, nasal swab. swab. But, like, put it practically into their brain. Don't just tickle their nose. I had to get swabbed last week. It was... Long story. Not super pleasant, but it felt like someone was scratching the back of my eyeball. Neat. Anyway. So, Williams et al. We're going to move on. Williams et al. Also a preprint. Looking at different things with this potential... Uh, vaccine. So they surveyed um, 527 UK adults. 86% of them, average age of 59 and a half, had said that they would want to receive a vaccine. I think that's a, a 86% of people wanted this vaccine. The people who were more likely to not want the vaccine felt that this was more of just a hype thing. So a little bit of, you know, that whole, mm. if you fear it, you're more likely to want to prevent it. All I know is when that thing comes out, there's probably only one thing that's going to make me not want to get the vaccine. They're like, Kurt, we have to put this in your eyeball. Okay, I'm not getting that one. But if it's anywhere else, I'm getting it. (laughs) You all heard it here first. We will. (laughs) Yeah, I hold my arm out. No, it's in the eye. No, forget it. Um, He said anywhere else, guys. You heard it. Anyway, move on. New England Journal of Medicine. Mm, Ellinghaus. House? House? Ellinghaus. I love this Al. one. Yeah, this is kind of interesting because it goes through that whole, you know, uh, genes and all this stuff that, you know, as a family addiction person, uh, yeah, I, I don't get into they this. They looked but, at almost 2,000 patients. Yeah, it's a lot of people. But basically what it came down to is this whole blood type thing. Um, you know, group, the people with blood that were O, well, they have a lower risk of getting COVID-19. But... Blood group type A, associated with higher risk of severe COVID. I was at somebody's house today. Wife, she's uh, O. And uh, husband? A. A. Mm. So I was like, Did you figure out what you are yet? I don't know. I can't find it. I, I think I'm G. I don't, Green. Yeah. So, yeah. Ask so, so, and you know, some of this stuff came out very early on, but uh, the studies are starting to kind of come together. But yeah, they looked at. These two, chromosome nine, the ABO blood group locus, and then there's a thing in chromosome three looking at six genes, which has potential functions potentially relevant to COVID-19. So there is a lot more of this genetic analysis to see kind of what we just asked a minute ago, like what makes this 70-year-old be asymptomatic and this one get on ACMO on the vent and die? Like, Could it be blood type? Blood type or something else. All right, modeling and prediction. We're looking at, I like this article. Um, it is a preprint, Malloy um, et al. They looked at the jail, and they're looking at different mitigation strategies. I love this. Stochastic dynamic transmission model. That's like math that's sarcastic, I think. Stochastic. <laughs> I love like, it. It's a sarcastic mathematician. But anyway, go but ahead. They were able to uh, reduce 83% of projected cases and hospitalizations by just limiting the population in the jail, having more single cells, um, and then testing more asymptomatic people could prevent 83% of projected cases and hospitalizations, and they could prevent 89% of the deaths if over this 83-day study window. So 
Just neat. I mean, it, it's the same thing as social distancing, but to try to do this in a jail? Pretty tough. I mean, and that those are big decreases. I think it's been helped a little bit by that whole thing that it's probably a lot harder to get this by touching stuff. You know, I mean, I think everybody had that fear that it was like on every doorknob. <laughs> so I think we're we're over that. And uh, uh, But yeah, I mean, social distancing and just especially in a jail where everybody's so close. But now we just need to end with the Type, climactic yeah, end here. The systemic review and meta regression analysis. Uh, preprint downloaded. Tayan? Ty, boy, that's a tough name. Taya. I have no idea. Tyal. It's H about drug. the H drug. And we were we were trying to avoid this landmine, but it's in here. And so we're just going to say, yep, it's another study that says probably not a good deal because of that QT deal. So you got that whole QTC prolongation and it's sequelae. Probably don't want to use chloroquine and hydrochloroquine. I think that's what it says. That's that's it. You know, I don't even think I need to read the rest of it because it's just... Don't do it. Don't do it. So not, yeah. and, and again, I think that the best study of all came out of the University of Minnesota where they did the one where they actually gave it to them right Prophylactically. After, yeah, right after they Pre, were exposed. Post-exposure prophylaxis. And, and actually on our Echo, we had somebody from the U speaking, and I think he gave us a hint that was coming in the next week when we he asked did. him that and question. And guess what? What? He's coming back this Tuesday. Ah. Do you mean in two days? I, oh gosh, that's two days already. Yeah, so he is coming back in Tuesday. Two days. Maybe he's got some other insider information you can only hear first on our COVID Echo. Yep. So... If you want to get on the COVID Echo, how would I do that, Dr. Bell? I would go to mafp.org backslash COVID-19-echo. Register. Minnesota Academy of Family Practice. You're right. And you can go there and you can find the way to get linked to that. Otherwise, so, follow us on Twitter at Echo CSCT and we'll give you all that information there too. Perfect. All right. Well, we're going to go and we will be back Tuesday evening to do the bullet points for the University of Minnesota Infectious Disease Doctors. All right. Talk. Happy Monday tomorrow. Are we going to have a band play? Oh, yeah. Are they here? Yeah. I hope it's a Johnny Cash ta- song, but maybe not. <laughs> All right. Here you go, Battle X. Last Saturday night, I got married. Me and my wife settled down. Now me and my wife are parted Gonna take another stroll downtown Irene, good night Irene, good night Good night, Irene, good night, Irene I'll see you in my dreams Sometimes I live in the country Sometimes I live in town Sometimes I take a full notion to jump in the river and drown. Gambling, 
Stop staying out late at night Go home to your wife and family Stay there by the fireside night Good night.